Good morning again. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. And before I read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we just come to you again because we know that we, we need you. We need your presence uh, to guide us, to encourage us, to strengthen us in the midst of our troubles. We pray that you would come and do that now. We pray that you would speak to each one of us right where we are troubled, right where we are experiencing trials or difficulty or fears or discouragement or doubt. We pray that you would meet us in that place by your spirit and that you would encourage us by your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. When was the last time you were discouraged? I don't ask, have you ever, have you ever been discouraged, but when? And uh, all of us have been discouraged at some point, if we're honest with ourselves, and, of course, it, it's true in discouragement, as it is true in so many things. There are always two ditches that we fall into. 
there are those whose motto is, eh, don't worry about it, right? Hakuna Matata, or whatever that means. Uh, and there are those who are perpetually on the brink of despair, where every hiccup in life feels like the end of the world. Often, we actually veer from one extreme to the other, uh, sometimes even from moment to moment, right? At times when we are down, uh, feeling the weight of life's troubles, we get ourselves out by a kind of cheery, everything's going to turn out, uh, no need to be sad kind of delusion. It's a kind of wishful thinking that's not grounded in reality. It's, you know, as long as you don't admit something's wrong, then nothing's wrong kind of approach to life. Some of us uh, try to live that way. We try to live with no worries uh, until life catches up with us. And suddenly we find ourselves reeling. Having pretended for so long that there was nothing to worry about, we fall faster and harder and deeper into despair than most. Well, why do I bring this up? Uh, Have you ever wondered if the Apostle Paul felt discouraged? Uh, Let me use a different phrase. Uh, was, Was the Apostle Paul ever afraid? You know, discouragement, I think, is a kind of fear, right? Fear that things are not going to change. Fear that things are not going to get better. Fear that nothing good can come from this. Fear that all of my work and all of my efforts are in vain. And I think the Apostle Paul was, at times, afraid. Maybe even afraid that that his work was in vain. I think that because, well, 1 Corinthians 2, 3, uh, Paul says his ministry in Corinth was characterized by weakness and fear and much trembling. So he tells us he was afraid. Weakness and fear. The Apostle Paul was afraid, uh, maybe at least tempted to be afraid that his human abilities would be inadequate for the task at hand and that the result would be fruitlessness. Are you ever afraid? Are you ever afraid that things are not going to get better? Do you ever feel like life is just against you at every turn? Are you ever discouraged in your work, wondering if it's all for nothing, if any good is going to come out of your tireless efforts? Well, this morning in the book of Acts, we're going to see how God encouraged Paul. And hopefully we'll see uh, in that how God encourages us in our struggles. Not taking us out of them, but encouraging us in them. And there are six ways that God encourages us uh, that we'll see in our passage. Six means that God uses to encourage us. Uh, You can see this outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along there. Uh, Six uh, ways God encourages us are through his people, his provision, his presence, his protection, his purpose, and his providence. You gotta love it when an outline falls together like that. All peas, love it. First, God's people. You know, it is uh, discouraging to feel alone. I don't know if you've ever felt alone, truly alone, uh, but you don't even have to be facing something hard for loneliness to be discouraging. But to face life alone is especially disheartening. Paul faced Athens alone. We saw that last week, or at least mostly alone. We saw at the beginning of that episode that Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. 
by the way, Luke doesn't tell us this, but apparently Silas and Timothy did join Paul at one point. But Paul, according to 1 Thessalonians 3, sent them back away, probably to Philippi and Thessalonica, to see how those churches had done since Paul left. You see, Paul was worried about those churches, so he sent Silas and Timothy to make sure that they were still persevering in the faith, to see how they were doing, which of course meant that Paul was alone once again. And that means that Paul left Athens, verse 1, alone, and he came to Corinth alone. And upon arriving in Corinth, though, Paul soon found uh, two people, Aquila and Priscilla. They were apparently Jewish Christians uh, expelled from Rome by the Emperor Claudius. Uh, it, it's interesting that uh, the, a, a Roman historian named Suetonius, shortly after this, wrote that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because of riots caused by Crestus. Uh, many modern historians think that Suetonius was speaking of Jewish unrest caused by Christ which in Greek would have sounded basically the same. And so the background would be the gospel had made its way to Rome, uh, possibly from some Roman citizen present at Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. And as it had with Paul on his missionary journeys, it caused some unrest, some division uh, in the Jewish community. And as a result, the emperor expelled all the Jews, Christian and non, because to him, of course, it was all the same. Well, whatever the case, Aquila and Priscilla left Rome and came to Corinth and uh, happened to have the same trade as Paul. Uh, they were all tent makers or possibly uh, more broadly leather workers of some kind. And so Paul stayed with them and worked beside them, verse 3. Uh, we haven't been told this yet in uh, the book of Acts, but the truth is Paul had a job besides being a church planter. Uh, today we would say Paul was bivocational. He had a, had a day job, as it were. Uh, which should maybe be of some of encouragement to many of you, right? That even if uh, you are engaged in some other full-time employment, uh, that doesn't mean that you can't make a great impact for Christ in other ways, uh, in addition to that employment, if you so choose, right? Paul, Paul did both. He cared for himself by making tents, and he preached the gospel day by day. And you can imagine that working alongside Aquila and Priscilla would have been an encouragement to Paul, Talking about the gospel, talking about ministry, maybe even planning and dreaming together about what to do and where to go next. Paul probably learned about the church in Rome from them, which would have been one of the things that spurred him to write that great letter to the Roman church. Paul would not only finds companionship in Aquila and Priscilla, but finally in Corinth, Silas and Timothy catch up with him again in verse 5. And so Paul goes from being alone in Athens to having four companions in Corinth. Companionship, right? Fellow workers, people to, you can talk to and stand side by side with. That, that's one of the ways that God keeps encouraging his people to keep going. Are you discouraged? Right? Do you feel alone in that? that? That just adds to the discouragement, doesn't it? But God doesn't leave us alone in the Christian life. You may remember Jesus was abandoned by his friends in the Garden of Gethsemane. They all ran from him when he was arrested, tried, and nailed to the cross. He knew what it was like to be completely alone. But he did that so that we might never be alone again, but might have the community of the church be surrounded by the body of Christ. And so God gives us the body of Christ, the church. Uh, he calls us out of the world and into this community. 
Now, of course, we don't do community perfectly here at All Souls, as, as no church does. But if you feel alone, talk to somebody. Ask somebody to get together. Look around you. Right? Look, look around you right now, really. I know we're Presbyterian. We don't do this kind of thing. But look around you, right? It's okay. This is the community that God has given to you. These are the people whom God has given to encourage you with their presence. Sometimes people feel alone in the church because churches can be clicky, right? And people can be selfish. Sometimes people feel alone because they're afraid to be real or to be known or to reach out. Or they're just waiting for someone else to reach out to them first. So let me encourage each of you right, to reach out to the people next to you. You may not be feeling lonely, but, but maybe they are. And if you are feeling lonely, you might find out that you're not alone even in that. And so reach out, talk to people, encourage one another. God's people can be a source of encouragement when we realize that we are not alone in the Christian life. Second source of encouragement, God's provision. It's not only discouraging when we feel alone, it is discouraging to feel stretched too thin. You've got to imagine Paul felt like this on some days, trying to make tents to make a living, and at the same time, reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, maybe always wishing he could do more. But the practicalities of life held him back until Silas and Timothy came. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that when Silas and Timothy came to Corinth, they brought financial support. Uh, no doubt from the churches that Paul had just recently planted. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 and 9 says this. Paul says, I robbed other churches, figuratively speaking, right, by accepting support from them in order to serve you, Corinthians. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And here's the point. Silas and Timothy come. They not only bring the, the encouragement uh, to Paul with their very presence, but they encourage him with, with finances, provision for ministry. That's actually hinted at in Acts in verse 5. Verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. Uh, maybe the NIV and the NASB are more helpful here. The NIV reads, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. See, there's a cause and effect here. Or the NASB says, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. Their presence and the finances they brought freed up Paul to preach because he didn't have to worry about making tents to earn money. Now, of course, there, there are ways of thinking about this in terms of finances, but there's, there's a broader application as well. Uh, do you feel stretched in what God is calling you to do? Do you feel like you, you just can't go any further or like you just can't do it all? Or like you, you, you'd like to be doing more in your service to Jesus, but certain constraints keep holding you back. You know, the first thing to do, of course, is to thank God for the ways that he has been providing for you up to this point. Ask him even to open your eyes to see the many ways he has been providing for you and caring for you and upholding you in your work. But the second thing to do is to ask him to provide. Right? Ask him to, to give you greater freedom in your service to him. And maybe third, ask others to help. Right? Paul, Paul did that on occasion. Right? That's okay. It's okay to recognize I can't do it all. I, I don't have all the resources I need. I need help from my brothers and sisters in Christ around me. And so ask. God typically works 
through his people. But of course, finally, trust God to give you what you need when you need it as you humble yourself before him. Help may or may not come as you expect in your father's wisdom, but it is legitimate to ask and wait on your father's answer. He knows what you need. Right? Do not fret, do not fear, do not be anxious. Jesus says your father provides for the sparrows. He can provide what you need when you need it. And so God's people are a source of encouragement. God's provision, the confidence that he will provide when we need it, is a source of encouragement. Third, God's presence is a source of encouragement. You know, it's, it's discouraging to feel like uh, God's not in this. It's discouraging when we feel like God is absent or God has abandoned us or God no longer cares if he ever did. And Paul's uptick in evangelism actually brought an uptick in opposition. Some of the Jews uh, began to revile him, verse 6. And yet Paul seemed to be unfazed. He, he shook out his garment in verse 6 and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Of course, he doesn't mean uh, he's going to avoid Jews altogether, but he means in Corinth he's going to begin, begin going to the Gentiles and remove himself from the synagogue. And so he does that. He leaves the synagogue. He goes next door to the house of a Gentile convert and continues his ministry there. Encouragingly, the, the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, believed Paul's message and went with him. And yet Paul was still discouraged. Uh, maybe he had been kicked out of one too many synagogues. Maybe he was thinking about what comes next in this scenario. Physical persecution, trials before the civil magistrate being run out of town, right? He knew the drill. It was old news and maybe it was getting old. How do I know that Paul was discouraged? Well, uh, besides 1 Corinthians 2.3, where Paul says he ministered in Corinth in weakness and fear and trembling, uh, because of what happens next. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10, we're told, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. and No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Well, first notice this command in verse 9. Uh, God says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. See, God knows that Paul is tempted to fear. He's tempted to give up. Again, uh, Paul, Paul knows where persecution leads. It makes sense for him to fear. Paul knows that his teaching is what leads to persecution. It makes sense for him to be tempted to be silent. So God speaks into that. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Keep talking. And notice how God encourages him. First in verse 10, he says, I am with you. God encourages Paul with his presence. And yet we can be more specific than that because verse 9 says, the Lord said to Paul, and in Acts, as with the rest of the New Testament, the phrase the Lord most often refers not to God generically, but to Jesus specifically. And so Jesus Christ is Lord, right? That's the gospel that Paul preaches. And notice then when, what is going on here. Whenever God's people felt discouraged in the Old Testament, God would encourage them saying, do not fear, I am with you. God said this to Moses, he said this to Joshua, he said this to Gideon and Jeremiah, and even to all of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. God's presence with his people is always his antidote to fear. 
But when we get to Matthew 28 in the New Testament, Jesus gives the Great Commission and says, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And here Jesus, the Lord, says to Paul, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Jesus, God in the flesh, is present with his people. Jesus, who is called Emmanuel at his birth, is still Emmanuel for his people because he is present with us by his Spirit. And Jesus, of course, can now be Emmanuel, God with us, because Jesus himself was abandoned by the Father at the cross for us. You may remember when Jesus suffered on the cross, the greatest pain was not the, the nails or even the crown of thorns. Jesus' greatest suffering was having his Father turn his back on him. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus, in the moment of his greatest agony, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course the answer is, Jesus became sin that we might become righteous in him. He bore our guilt that we might bear his glory. He was forsaken that we might be accepted. He was abandoned that we might never have to know life without God's presence with us. So people of God, how are you tempted to fear? And I'm not simply talking about a moment of fear, but, but holding on and wallowing in and clinging to fear. Everybody's afraid. The question is, what do we do with that fear? Do we hold on to it? Do we wallow in it? How are you tempted to live in fear? Where are you tempted to give up? Afraid that, that nothing's ever going to get better or nothing's ever going to change or all of your work is pointless. If you are discouraged, you need to know that Jesus is with you in the struggle. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Let his presence be an encouragement. Uh, you, you won't see it, right? You, you're not going to feel it, but that doesn't make Jesus' presence any less real. Right? We know by faith that he is with us by his spirit. Trust him in that. Find comfort in that. Persevere in that knowledge. You see, God's people are an encouragement. God's provision is an encouragement. God's presence is an encouragement to us in our struggles. Fourth, God's protection is an encouragement. It's discouraging to feel like everyone and everything is against you. Uh, some days we feel like everything is against us because it just seems that nothing goes our way, right? You know, the dog eats your breakfast while you're looking the other way, or uh, you realize your car is out of gas while you're already late for work, or we can't find a parking spot, and when you do, you realize you don't have quarters to feed the meter, whatever. Uh, those are trivial things, to be sure, but they often leave us feeling like the world is against us. And of course, sometimes it's harder things, bigger things. Sometimes people really are against us. Our boss, our neighbor, our teacher, sometimes even our family members. And, of course, whatever trouble might be going on, we do have an enemy. The devil, the evil one, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't forget about him. He is out to get you, according to Scripture. And he will use every trick in the book to discourage you and tear, your, tear you down. So who is on our side? Jesus says to Paul in verse 10, I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Uh, Jesus is not promising right, a complete lack of persecution for Paul, clearly, because it'll come. 
Jesus is promising that he will take care of Paul in the midst of it. Now, this is uh, the lesson that Paul learned so well when he later wrote in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is on our side. God takes up our cause. That, that doesn't mean that God takes up our causes, but that's a different thing. Many of our causes are petty and selfish, right? The fact that God is on your side does not mean that God is on your political side or that God is on your national side. It doesn't mean that God has taken up your social causes or even your pet moral cause. God doesn't take up our causes, right? but our good is his cause, God uh, repeatedly says in Scripture, we're, we are repeatedly told in Scripture that God takes up the cause of his people to care for them, to defend them, to protect them. God is our defender. And when we feel like the world is against us, when we have a keen sense of Satan's opposition, remember that God is with you to protect you, to care for you. The Lord is our keeper, says Psalm 121. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They, they knew this well, right? Remember that story in the book of Daniel? Uh, Daniel 3, 17 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are responding to the threats of Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Right? See, see, those Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they recognized that they did not know God's plan, but they did not doubt his presence and protection. Uh, Shadrach and crew, right? They, they know how, they, they don't even realize how true their words are. Uh, Jesus went to the cross. And from one perspective, God did not save him from earthly trouble. He bore earthly trouble. His enemies put him to death. And yet God did deliver him from the power of death. See, our hope is this, that nothing can do us ultimate harm because death itself has been neutered in the resurrection. So are you fearful and discouraged? Feeling like the world is out to get you? God is your protector. Whatever you're going through, he, he could bring you out of it, if he thought wise and good, and he will bring you through it and will finally raise you up with Christ on the last day. And so God's people are an encouragement. God's provision is an encouragement. God's presence with us is an encouragement. God's protection is an encouragement. Fifth, God's purpose is an encouragement. Uh, it, it's discouraging to feel like your efforts are pointless, that nothing you do will make a difference, that all your work is in vain. So what does God say to Paul? Verse 9, go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? Verse 10, for I have many in this city who are my people. This is one of those great counterintuitive passages in Scripture, right? People typically think that the doctrine of election undercuts evangelism. If God has already chosen who to save, why should we share the gospel? Why not just let God uh, save those whom he has already chosen to save? Of course, that's a human uh, way of thinking, right? That's human wisdom. Because the truth is that God has not only ordained the ends of salvation, but he has ordained the means of gospel proclamation. God says to Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. 
The implication is keep sharing the gospel so that those who are my people can hear and be saved. God already claims them as his own, even though they haven't repented, even though they haven't even heard the gospel. God claims them as his own. I have many in this city who are my people. God has a purpose, right? The salvation of his own and his purpose will not be thwarted. This is why election is actually an encouragement to evangelism, not a discouragement. The doctrine of election teaches that God has a purpose to save certain people. And God's purposes must be fulfilled. That means that as we share the gospel, God will fulfill his purposes and use his gospel to save. That gives us confidence. God is at work here. If it were up to us to share the gospel just right, or if it were up to our hearers to to understand, repent, and believe in their own strength, our work would be hopeless. But what is our hope? Not, I have just the right words. Not, if I just use the right argument, they will believe. Our hope is God's purposes must be fulfilled. And of course, death itself cannot stop God's work, right? Again, the cross, Jesus went to the cross. It looked like a tragedy. It looked like the end, right? His own disciples thought it was the end. Remember on the road to Emmaus, he's traveling and two, two disciples are heading uh, to Emmaus and Jesus says, what's going on? And they said, well, we, we thought he was the Christ, but now it's all over. Even his disciples thought the cross was the end, but God raised him from the dead and through death brought about victory. The resurrection shows that death itself cannot stop God's work, cannot thwart God's purposes. And Paul picks up this thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that, that great chapter about the resurrection. It ends with these words, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Whole chapter is about the resurrection of Jesus and, and our future resurrection. And Paul concludes with these words, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. See, as you serve God, his purposes will stand. Your work will not be in vain. Whether you see fruit in this life or not, how can I say that? Well, because of the resurrection. The resurrection assures us that, that even if you see no fruit from your toil in this life, as you do your work unto the Lord, you will see fruit in the resurrection. Which at the very least means, as Paul says elsewhere, right, God will reward the work of his faithful children in the life to come. Whatever that means, I don't fully understand but that your work will not be in vain. We can work as we seek to serve Jesus, whatever we might be doing, as we do our work unto the Lord in accordance with his word, right? We can work with the confidence that our work is not in vain. God's purposes will be fulfilled in and through us. So we have God's people, God's provision, God's presence, God's protection, God's purpose, and finally God's providence is an encouragement. Again, it's discouraging to feel like the world is out of control. Uh, we, we, we can say more than, though, that, that God is with us in the midst of that. We can say more than God will protect us in the midst of that. We can even say more than God has a plan in the midst of that. Uh, we might imagine a God who is strong enough to get us through, but has no more idea of what is going on than, than we. But that's not our God. Paul was... Uh, So encouraged by Jesus' words that he stayed a year and six months in Corinth, according to verse 11. Eventually, the proconsul of Achaia, uh, sort of the bigwig Roman ruler of the area, changed. 
And Gallio, the, the, the brother of the famous philosopher Seneca, became the ruler of all Achaia. And the Jews pounce. And they bring Paul before the tribunal and they accuse him of persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Uh, but Gallio is not impressed. And Paul is about to open his mouth, which is a great comment, right? Paul's just about to open his mouth. He wants to defend himself. But Gallio jumps in and says, basically, what does this have to do with me? This is, this is some obscure religious debate among Jews. I, I don't have anything to do with this. And this actually would have been a great win for the early Christians because a Roman civil authority of this level is basically giving the green light uh, to Christianity. The book of Acts, as you may know, it actually ends with Paul in prison in Rome. And some think uh, that in the book of Acts, Luke is writing a kind of court brief to demonstrate that Paul has done nothing against the Roman law. Uh, and that, if you've noticed, Luke includes repeated judgments of Roman rulers throughout the book to show that Paul has not been convicted of any crime against Rome. He's always found innocent. And in fact, rather, uh, Paul's Jewish opposition has created false charges and stirred up troubles while Paul is really the innocent victim here. Well, whether that's the case or not, whether that's Luke's goal or not, uh, Gallio here does declare Paul innocent of any crime against Rome, and he drives them all out of his presence. Now, uh, interestingly, uh, we're told that they seize Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him right in front of Gallio, but he pays no mind. Uh, now, it, it's not entirely clear who they are. Uh, they could be the pagan Gentiles who, taking advantage of Gallio's rebuff of the Jews' request, sort of take the opportunity to take out their own anti-Semitic aggression on the new ruler of the synagogue, maybe. Or they could be the Jews taking out their anger against Sosthenes, another synagogue ruler who had come to Christ. Uh, there is actually a Sosthenes mentioned in the, in the address of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And so either, uh, may, maybe this is the same guy, maybe not, we don't know. Either way, Gallio's flippant disregard for their actions shows that he will not be brought into their disputes. He's just not going to deal with it. How is that an encouragement? <laughs> well, Proverbs 21, verse 1 says that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Gallio gave Paul and the whole Christian church there a favorable answer. Why? Because that's what God wanted to happen. Things were never easy for Paul, but whatever happened, he knew that God was in control. Right? God rules over all. He rules over kings and governors and presidents. He rules over storms and seas and earthquakes. He rules over all. And all things work together for the good of those who love him. We see this no more clearly, again, than in the cross. In Acts 2, Peter preached that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts chapter 4, the church prays, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What's the point? The point is, in the cross, we see the height of human evil and rebellion against God and the perfect plan of God being played out. 
Now, Scripture never tries to explain this or, or rationalize one way or another. It simply states it as a fact. Human actions done by rational moral agents are simultaneously under the sovereign control of God. It's not, it's not one or the other, right? We, we always want to make it one or the other. Human beings, though, are free and responsible, and God is sovereign and in control. And this is an encouragement because what it means is that whatever's going on around you, whether from a Roman ruler or an American president, whether from your teacher or boss or parent, right, God is in control. God rules over all things for your good. As Paul says again in Romans, all things work together for the good of those who love God. So God's providence should be an encouragement. It means that someone who knows more and loves more is in control of what's going on. He will not stop until his people experience the joy of his love in all of its fullness. God is on a mission, and it's, it's your joy in his love. Be encouraged. Right? Serve God with courage. He, he has surrounded you with his people. You're not alone. He will provide what you need as you need it in his wisdom, in his timing. He will be with you in the struggle. He will never abandon you. He will protect you from ultimate harm, right? Death does not win. And he will accomplish his purposes for you and through you. Your work is not in vain. And finally, he will work all things out for the good of those who love him. Be encouraged. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would continually remind us, continually remind us that you are with us and for us. Help us to rest and serve in that knowledge. Help us to rest and serve with confidence, not in our strength or our wisdom or our goodness, but help us to rest and serve with a confidence that, that our God is with us and that he is powerful and he is wise and he is good and you are working all things out for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.